know, I think we all, whether we think about this or not, we all kind of come to life with a set of expectations that life is supposed to go a certain way, that life is supposed to be a certain way. And I think this is especially true in our part of the world that we expect a lot out of life. I mean, we expect a lot in terms of our comfort. Not only do we just automatically assume or expect to have food, but we expect to have good food. Not only do we expect to have a shelter over our heads, but we've come to expect to live in nice, comfortable, sometimes big homes. We expect to have certain gadgets. We expect to have certain conveniences. We expect to be able to do certain things and go to certain places. Bottom line is, we expect a lot. But I think that we are living in a time when everything that we have come to expect is uncertain. In fact, I think the uncertainty of our times is staggering. I, I, I read the Wall Street Journal. I, I thumb through it every now and then. And this week, there were some things that just caught my attention. I'm amazed. I mean, this isn't the National Enquirer here. I'm amazed at how many of these economists today are predicting something on par with the Great Depression. But the article that caught my attention this week was this other kind of depression that's going on in our, in our land. This article stated this. 20% of teenagers today, one out of five, are suffering from clinical depression. One out of five. And reading this article, it was just interesting uh, because they were saying that parents, school officials, psychologists, they simply don't know what to do. And so when you, when, when, when you read all of this, and you don't even have to read the Wall Street Journal, you can just have your eyes open a little bit and in tune with things, you get the sense that things are beginning to crumble a little bit. Here's Paul. And this is simply from an earthly perspective. When you look at his life, his life, his life ambition, his life work from an earthly perspective is crumbling. Paul is facing an uncertain future. He's in prison. He's awaiting Emperor Nero's verdict, one that could cost him his very life. In fact, verse 12, it just starts off, this whole section starts off with these words. Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, what is happening to me. And here's what's happening to Paul. Paul is in prison, chained down, and, and, and it probably went something like this. Every eight hours, he'd be chained to one of the elite Praetorian guards. So this guy couldn't sleep without being chained up to a guy. He couldn't go to the bathroom. He, I mean, everything he did, he's chained to a Praetorian guard. And I was thinking about this, about Paul, because Paul is this guy who runs all over the world, preaching the gospel, planting churches. The guy can't sit still. 
And yet here he is. He's confined in these four walls to chains and he can't move. Think about how discouraging this could be for the apostle Paul. Oh, wait a second. How did I get here again? And um, God, is this what I deserve? And then I was thinking about myself, and maybe if the shoe fits, this would apply to you too. I mean, would I be bitter? Would I be resentful? Maybe we might even be a bit angry with God. And yet when you listen to Paul, he's quite happy about this place. He's not complaining. In fact, excitement jumps off the pages. Why? I'll tell you why. Because this place, as bad as, bad as it is, has turned out for such great good in terms of the advance of the gospel. And Paul couldn't be more fired up. I mean, listen to him. Look at verse 13. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here you have this elite force, Caesar's elite force. And think about this. Every eight hours, another hardened pagan, cynical soldier comes in, chains himself to the most persuasive evangelist evangelist in the history of the world. And one by one, I think these guys are getting converted. So that by the time you get to the end of the letter, Paul says this. He says, and by the way, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me, they greet you. All the saints greet you. Listen to this. And especially those of Caesar's household. Paul never could have planned this. He never could have strategized for this. The gospel spreading through this elite force. It's even touching Caesar's household. We got a church now in Rome and Paul is fired up. It doesn't stop here. Verse 14, he says, you know what? Now I got these other brothers too around me and they're watching me and they're seeing how I fearlessly proclaim the word of God, how I fearlessly preach Christ. You know what? It's rubbing off on them. They're getting bold too. I mean, Paul is fired up. So let me ask you this question. Are you stuck in a bad place today? Could be with your job. It could be the uncertainty of your future. You might be in a crumbling relationship. I don't know what it is. But have you ever considered that maybe God put you in that place for a reason? And that he wants to use it for great good? See, because not only is Paul in a bad place, but Paul is dealing with some difficult people who are trying to make his life and ministry miserable. You read verses 15 through 17, and he talks about these people. 
Some who are indeed preaching Christ from envy, rivalry, but others from goodwill. He says, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here in the defense of the gospel. But the former, they proclaim Christ out of rivalry. Not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. Like, kick the dog when he's down. And see, what I want us to see here is these people aren't preaching a false gospel. They're preaching Christ. The reason I know that is because if they were preaching a false gospel, Paul would say it and probably say something similar to what he says in Galatians, let them be accursed. So they're not heretics, they're preaching Christ, but they're doing it to stroke their own ego, they're doing it for their own gain, they're doing it because they're jealous of Paul, they're competing with Paul, they're intentionally trying to inflict Paul, they're trying to bring Paul, Paul down. I mean, I can kind of almost hear him say, poor Paul. Look at Paul. His ministry is done. He's in prison. God's hand has left him. And then when I hear this, I kind of think, boy, it's a good thing we no longer have to deal with competitiveness in the church, huh? That church's ministries, denominations, we're just all partnering together for the gospel today. But what blows me away is Paul's response in verse 18. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth. You know what? I really don't care because I care about one thing that Christ has proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. And if you didn't hear me say rejoice the first time, let me say it again. It makes me full of joy. What about you? Do you have some difficult people in your life today? People who might be envious of you, people who are maybe trying to bring you down, or maybe they're not even intentionally trying to do any of these things, but merely by the fact of who they are and what they are and what they have done, they've hurt you, they've afflicted you, they've injured you. Let me ask you, we all have these people in our life. How are you responding See, and here's the deal. We can respond to, to bad situations and difficult people in so many ways. We can either get bitter or we can get better. We can become bitter or we can become sweeter. And I'll tell you what, how you and I respond is going to make all the difference, not just out here, but particularly in here. And I'll tell you where it starts. Your response starts with your view of suffering. In fact, I was reading this story about William Willimon, who is chaplain at Duke University and also a pastor. And he writes um, this. He recounts a visit he made to a couple in the hospital. And he said, the woman just delivered a baby and it was not doing well. Shortly after he arrived, the, doctors, the doctor entered, saying to the parents, you have a new baby, a baby boy, but there are some problems. Your child has been born with Down syndrome. Also, your baby has a rather minor and correctable respiratory condition. Here's my recommendation. I want you to consider to just... Letting nature take its course 
And then in a few days, there won't be a problem because there won't be a baby. The couple seemed confused by what the doctor told them. And so the husband said, sir, if the condition can be corrected, we want it corrected. The doctor said, you must understand that studies show that parents who keep these children have a very high incidence of marital distress and separation. Is it really fair for you to bring this sort of suffering upon your other two children? And then Williman writes this. He says, at the mention of the word suffering, the mother seemed to finally understand what was going on. And this is what she said. Our children have had every advantage in the world. They finally they, 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 they really have never known suffering. They've never had the opportunity to know it. I don't know if God's hand is in this or not, but I could certainly see why it would make perfect sense why a child like this would be born into a family like ours. Our children will do just fine when you think about it. This is a great opportunity for our family. The doctor looked absolutely perplexed. And then he looked at Williman and he said, I hope you pump some reason into them. And Williman then writes this. He says the couple was actually using reason. It was just a reason that was completely foreign to the doctor. And he says, for me, it was a vivid example of the church at its best teaching a different language to the world. We do that because we take words like suffering that are such negatives to our world and we teach a different language. We show that, that, that words like suffering have a whole new meaning in Christ, that, that suffering is not negative, it's redemptive. In fact, Matthew Henry's commentary on, on the text that we're looking at right now, he says this, he says, God is the great alchemist. I don't know if you know what alchemy is, but alchemy was this attempt in the Middle Ages by chemists to take lead and turn it into gold. So what they were doing is they were taking something almost useless and worthless, and they were turning it into something of great beauty, great worth. You know what? Matthew Henry is right. This is a powerful word picture. Because God is the only alchemist. He is the only one who can turn lead into gold. He's the only one who can take something utterly useless and worthless and turn it into beauty and good. I mean, this is what God does. God takes bad things and he takes bad situations, even things that Paul mentions like prisons and crosses, and he turns them into resurrections. In fact, I'll even push this further. This is God's way. Do you know that? See, because if you don't know that, then when you are stuck in prison or you lose a job or something quote unquote horrible happens to you he gargles it bitter and you're going to get angry 
But if you really know in your heart of hearts, God, planning churches for one, all I want, have, I want, I want, have, all, have. That, that is his one who, who spins all of, all of our suffering in, into gold. If you know that, you'll be like Paul. And it will hurt. And you'll feel the pain and the disappointment. But you'll rejoice. Can't wait to see how God's going to spin my lead into gold. And see, for Paul, he gets to see this, but only just a little piece. You know what, you know what Paul doesn't get to see? In fact, I even wonder this sometimes. This guy that runs all over the world, preaching, planting churches, back, forth, all over. I wonder if we would have Philippians and all these letters in the New Testament that are called the prison epistles. If God didn't just say, okay, here you go. Here's four walls. Now sit and write. And you know what we have today? We have Philippians. Paul didn't know that. See, and, and, and there's something in this text that really confuses commentators. Look at verse 19. Paul says, For I know, in light of everything that's happened to me, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I understand why probably every English translation we have of the Bible has the word deliverance there, but the Greek word, it's sozo. It's a technical term, and every time that term is translated, salvation. So, Paul says, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. Now you're left asking, oh my goodness, now what does that mean? Um, Now, I think because of what he says next, we know that Paul is not referring to this deliverance or salvation from Caesar because in the following verses, he says, even if I have to die. So here's what Paul is saying, I think, is that these circumstances, this bad place, these difficult people, That God is using them for great good, not just out there in the world for the advancement of the gospel, but God's using it in me for my salvation. God's using this to save me. And this is not capital S salvation, being saved from sin, because Paul is a man who's in Christ. But this is a small L.S. salvation. What Paul is saying is, all of this is happening, it's saving me. It's making me into the man that God wants me to be. It's refining me. It's making me sweeter. It's making me more humble. It's turning me into gold. See, now for me, this is the question. I so badly want to become like Paul. Don't you? 
where instead of whining and complaining and, and, and getting angry and bitter and why is this happening to me and why am I put in this place? Don't you want to be like Paul who can rejoice? And so for me now, how, how, how do I get like Paul? And it comes down to this question, I think, that we ask a lot around here. Why are you here? What is it that today your life is aiming for? What is your definition of life? What is it that makes you say today, if I have this, then I'm really living, regardless of what else is taken from me? Because Paul would say this to that question. He says, the driving passion of my life, my life's ultimate aim is this, for me to live Christ. Oh my goodness. That's the definition of life. That's what makes life, life for Paul. And what I want us to see right now is that this isn't some just pat Sunday school answer. You know, like when you ask the kids whatever question it is, they raise their hand and they say, Jesus. Okay, it, it, it's, it's so much more than this. And all of us, I think, know verse 21, but we don't understand that you can't understand 21 without understanding verse 20 and that actu- the, the actual substance that's in verse 21 for me to live is Christ is actually found in verse 20 and the thing that connects it is this word for. Did I lose you? I hope not. Um, but I want you to at least think a little bit this morning. Um, Because in verse 20, this is essentially what Paul's saying. He's saying this. All right. Whether I live or die, whether I remain a prisoner or am set free, there's only one thing I care about, and that's this. That Christ is honored. That's all he cares about. I don't care if I live. I don't care if I die. I just want Christ to be honored. Now, some of your translations translate the word honor as exalt, that Christ be exalted. Some of your translations have the word magnify, that Christ be made great. I like that one. Because the Greek word is the word megaluno. And this is what it means. Get this in. Take this in. Megaluno means this. It means to display. As great and awesome to put on display that thing as great, as supremely awesome. So this is what Paul's saying. I exist for one reason. It is to make Christ great. I I just want to put Christ on display as as supremely awesome. I do this with my body, through my head, through my heart, through my hands, through my feet. My one aim in life is to honor Christ. It's to exalt Christ. It's to put him on display so that when you look at my life, you are, you can't do anything but conclude, Paul, your Christ is awesome.
Can you say that today? Honestly, is this why you exist? What is your definition of life? What is it that honestly makes you say, if I only had this, I would really be living? You know, it could be a thousand different things today. But what I want us to be careful of this morning is that we don't just assume that it's the right thing, Christ. Because I want us to hear what Paul is saying. It's more than, here's my aim. It's deeper. Because what Paul is saying is, here's my aim, but also here's how I live out my aim of exalting Christ. And that's why we need to see the relationship between verses 20 and 21. Because there are two sets of words used in those verses. Look at them right now. If you have a Bible, open it and look at it. You have one set of words, life and to live, and another set of words, death and to die. If you got a pencil or pen, underline them. Because now the key word in these two verses is actually the word for. And you can circle that word, for or because. Because this is the thing that connects these two verses. And I think that this is worth thinking about. Because if we can understand what these two verses say, our whole life will be changed. How we do church will be changed. How we do marriage and family will be changed if we get this word for in light of verses 20 and 21. So on July 4, I want to start with the death pair. Hmm. Come to church on July 4 to talk about death. Guess what? Death is on Paul's mind. Any moment could be his last day. He knows this. But let's be honest right now. Are we really immune from this ourselves? Here's what Paul is saying about death. It's absolutely incredible. Verse 20. I'm going to take the life part out and just see the death part. But that with full courage... Now, as always, Christ will be honored. He will be put on display as great in my body, by my death, or in my death, for or because to die is gain. Absolutely, death. The degree that dying is for me. See death. You know, but Paul did. He did. He genuinely did. Why? Well, what Paul said, Paul, what, because of, because of three. He said in verse one, verse three, he says, I'm hard pressed between the two. I don't know what I should do. Should I live or should I die? But my desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that, says Paul, is far better. See, for Paul, death is gain because to die is to get more of Christ. 
And Paul's thinking, I'll get to see him face to face. As he says somewhere else, he says, now we see him as though dimly in a mirror, but then we're going to see him face to face. Paul couldn't wait to die. Because to Paul, being with, with Christ was far better than spouse, better than children, better than comfort, better than food, better than career, better than sports, better than even ministry. It was Christ. Christ was greater than anything this world had to offer. And you see how this powerfully exalts Christ? Tertullian, one of the great apologists, church fathers in the second century. You know how this guy was converted to Christ? He sat in an arena. And he saw with his own eyes how Christian children, children, and Christian slave men faced a hideous and torturous death. I get to be with Jesus. And you know that thousands upon thousands converted to Christ in Roman arenas as they watched hundreds being butchered and going to their death with death being gained. You see how We get to exalt Christ in our dying when we see death as gain. You know, I think this is worth mentioning again. I mentioned it last week, but just walking alongside the Stoies and as they've had to just deal with death. It hurts. It's painful. And to see him on Father's Day Feeling the pain, expressing the pain, but still with a smile. Say, I got a vision this week, Rod, of Kristen dancing before Jesus. It's better. It's better. That's what that's this text. In my hope is that we have seen or we will all see grandpas and grandmas and moms and dads and brothers and sisters go to their death in this way, who are utterly persuaded that in their final days and in their final hours, death is gain. Death is better because I get more of Christ. I get to see him. I get to dance with him. question comes down to this. Do you treasure Christ this way? Do you prize Christ this way? Because if you don't, death will never be seen as anything but a very bad thing. See, if Paul can say this about dying, think about what it means for this guy to live. And now let's just look at at, at the living part of these verses. He says, now as always, Christ will be be honored. Christ will be exalted in my life. I, I, I want Christ to be made great 
For, now explain this to me, Paul, for to me to live is Christ. And again, it's the same principle. Paul is saying that Christ is magnified. He will be exalted in my, in my living to the degree that Christ is my life. Now, what does this mean that Christ is my life? You know, John Piper, some of you know his great phrase that he builds his whole theology around, says this. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I'll explain how this, how this works in the day-to-day. How many of you got the new iPhone? How many of you were in line for the new iPhone? Sweet. I love this. Not one hand went up. Now, my wife was actually at the mall where the Mac store is on the day the new iPhone came out. She doesn't care about phones, so she wasn't there. But she came home and she's like, what's going on? And I, I, oh, that Wall Street Journal article. Yeah, the iPhone came out today. Um, Because she said there was literally a line from the Mac store weaving itself all the way around the mall, all the way to Macy's. Okay, so here's what I'm envisioning. People waited hours. Some even maybe waited overnight like they do the Xbox 360. Now, I probably, if I asked about the Xbox 360, I'd probably get more hands. But I'm not going to do that because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But here's what I want us to see. Do you see how those hundreds of people were bringing great glory to that iPod, that iPhone? in their wanting, in their waiting, in their joy and excitement of possessing, they're bringing glory. I mean, come this fall, when those 110,000 people show up in Ann Arbor, they're bringing glory. As bad as it is. (laughs) What are you bringing glory to? And you're wanting, and you're panting, you're waiting in the joy that you express once you get that thing and possess it. See, for Paul, that one thing is Christ. This is Paul's definition of life. It's Christ. And I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but in Philippians 3, verse 8, he says, I, I, I want to know one thing. In fact, I consider everything as loss. I consider it as dung, as rubbish, compared to knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Can you say that today? That you count everything as loss compared to Christ. Your paycheck, your achievements, your recognition, your material possessions, houses, cars, children, vacations, anything that you might have, boyfriend, girlfriend. It's all loss. It's nothing more than garbage compared to knowing Christ. Do you see? That when we treasure Christ and prize Christ in this way, how we are exalting Christ. In Israel, one of the first weekends that we had a little free time, I took my kids out to the desert, to the Judean desert, to a place called En Gedi. 
and I hiked them. I worked them. And uh, I don't know if we have some of the pictures. There we are. I can't wait to take some of you to this place. We're all pretty happy at this point. Kate's waving. You know, look at the smiles. Uh, What they don't know is that there's hours of hiking. (laughs) And, you know, it gets to the point where Kate's taking her shoes off, and you can't hear all the complaining that went on. Shirts are coming off. It's 15 degrees hotter than it is outside today. Um, We didn't get a real hot day, but I'll tell you what. They came to this place right here. And I took them out there, and I worked them. And I taught him a verse, Psalm 63. Because David wrote this verse in this place after he lost everything, everything. He lost his job. He lost his, his family. He, he lost his, his position in Saul's court. He lost his best friend, Jonathan. He's all alone. And in this dry and weary place, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary place where there is no water. And every time my kids would complain, we'd say that verse. And then by the end, when they saw this water, We all just got in. And I said, you know what? That water is God. And this is what David wanted. It's all he wanted. Same as Paul. For me to live. Christ. And see, when when people can actually get to this place in life where they prize Christ and they cherish Christ and they treasure Christ above all things, I'm going to tell you some things that start to happen. Your, Your grip on the world starts to loosen and the world's grip on you is loosened. And things like stock markets and living in nice homes and and nice neighborhoods and dining out at nice restaurants and and needing comfort and seeking success and, and having my kids be successful. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter anymore. Being in bad places with difficult people in an uncertain future whether it could be prisons, suffering, and even death, we see all these things in a new light. Can you say it this morning, honestly, from your heart, for me to live Christ? Can you? Instead of giving you a a guilt trip, because I feel in my own life how I fall short of Paul, but of how badly I want to be like Paul. I don't want to guilt anyone this morning. I don't want to shame anyone this morning. Because I'll tell you what, at the end of the day, that only works for a little while. I want to give you one reason why you should want to. Besides the fact that you were made for God, that the ache in your heart is for God, whether you know that or not, that life, the abundant life is in God. But the thing I want to take you to is John 17, verse 19, and meditate on this this week, because Jesus says, 
For their sake, I have sanctified myself so that they might be sanctified. In other words, what he's saying literally, for their sake, I've set myself apart. Jesus says, I've been set apart solely for them. My one aim, my one ambition, my one passion in life is for them. In in other words, what Jesus is actually saying is this, for me to live is them. For me to live, it's us, it's me. The one through whom the world was made, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, his one aim, his one ambition in life was us. And to die for him was gain. See, when you just meditate on that and let that sink in your heart, that God would do that for me, that the Lord of the universe, for him to live is me, for me, That melts my heart. And it causes my heart now to say back to him, for me to live is Christ. Let's pray.